Blog Talk Radio.
Kalala, Yael et Inat. Yeah, I know. 
Et tout le monde 
Ya complicité, ya ganayo. 
Mali and Burkina Faso are edging further and further away from France and the regional bloc ECOWAS. They have now signed their own joint security pact, the Lipacto Duma Charter. This charter binds the signatories to assist one another, including militarily, in the event of an attack on any one of them. But can this new security architecture end the rampant insurgency in the Sahel and guarantee peace and stability? And how does France's departure change the dynamics of the conflict in the region? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, the decision by Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso to establish their own collective security framework could further distance them from ECOWAS and deepen the existing political and economic divide in the bloc. CGTN's Deji Badimosi looks at what this means. When regional body ECOWAS threatened military action against Niger's new rulers following the coup, the military leadership of Mali and Burkina Faso also threatened to join forces with Niger to fight back any forceful intervention by ECOWAS troops. Analysts say the signing of the Mutual Defense Pact is a clear sign that the governments of the three countries are keen to maintain unity given the international isolation they're currently facing. Uh, each of the countries uh, believe that any attack on any of them is an attack on all since they are all uh, guilty of uh, the same offense. And so I think it is um, natural for them to want to come together uh, with the hope that um, that would act as a deterrent uh, to the regional body that had threatened at the initial stage to attack uh, Niger and uh, forcefully restore uh, constitutional governance. They are trying to safeguard themselves from external aggression, which is not only from Mekowans, uh, but also in Mali we have the Tuaregs that are you know, threatening the stability of the country. And, um, of course, then from ECOWAS, who is planning to invade. Burkina Faso and Mali are struggling to deal with deep-rooted insecurity in parts of their territories. There's been no formal reaction yet from either ECOWAS or the African Union to the formation of the new alliance. It's also difficult to tell how the new group will operate on the ground and whether the three countries, among the poorest on the continent, have the capacity to fund and run the alliance. For every infraction of ECOWAS protocol, there are processes to be followed. And if you look at the ECOWAS resolution at the two summits that they held in Abuja, it was made clearly that you know, the, the resort to force will be the last option. I want to believe strongly that you know, they are still studying the situation. At the appropriate time, they will respond appropriately. Some say that if the three countries eventually leave ECOWAS, this could further weaken and divide the regional body. The jury is still out on that. But ECOWAS' threat to use force to restore democracy in Niger, if diplomacy fails, is also still very much in place. That's the more reason why the military leadership of Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso will continue to drive their new alliance, at the very least, as a show of force. DG Badimasi, CGTN, Lagos, Nigeria. Well, let's now broaden our discussion and bring in our panel of experts. Joining us from Abuja in Nigeria, Yusuf Ibrahim Bako, International Affairs and Security Analyst, 
from Virginia in the United States, joining us via Zoom, Tulu Akirele, security and counter-terrorism expert. And in London, via Zoom as well, Alex Vines, the director of the Africa program at Chatham House. A warm welcome to you all and thank you for joining us on the program. Well, let me start off with you, Yusuf, because uh, Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso have signed a security pact that is said to be a combination of military and economic efforts between the three countries. First of all, let's start by looking at the key drivers behind the establishment of this pact. What are those? This revolution in Sahelian affairs, as I have come to think of it, has been driven by, as we all know, the rejection, the complete rejection of France and uh, Franca Freak. And in their efforts to attempt to try and maintain their own in, uh, security and architecture, they have decided to formulate this Liptako uh, Charter to fight against any armed rebellion or external aggressions. Of course, the external aggression we know uh, stems from the uh, ECOWAS and the whole misreading, actually, of ECOWAS's uh, attempts at solving the issue surrounding the uh, Sahelian uh, Three of uh, Mali, uh, Burkina Faso and Niger. Um, the Nigeria-led ECOWAS under this president, uh, Tinubu, um, did what it should have done in looking at the matter and discussing it and, of course, laying best plans in the eventuality that, of course, military intervention was required. I think the, the, the rumors misread. The uh, Nigerians did not look at the issue as want to go to war, but instead wanted to play out all diplomatic solutions to its fullest. See, we could see that with the um, different... Uh, um, people that it sent to Niamey to go and discuss the uh, stand down of the uh, military junta there. Um, I think what will happen here with ECOWAS is ECOWAS will play the long game. And the fact of the matter is we're talking about our brothers here in Niger, Mali and uh, Burkina Faso. And we will do whatever it is necessary within means to keep them back in the fold. There's no point in them being totally isolated. But this uh, new Sahelian pact is an interesting one, and I think that it's something that um, we should be looking at a little closer. So let's look at that a little bit closer too, Lou, because aside from the complete rejection of France by the Sahelian Three, they say that the Liptako-Goma Charter, that is what it is called, is the building block for an alliance uh, to establish a collective defense and mutual assistance framework for the populations. I'm particularly interested in the mutual assistance. What does it imply exactly? Well, yes, we can consider this uh, a mutual defense pact entered into existence by military leaders. So it's almost a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Um, we know the Charter established the alliance of Sahel states and it binds the countries together as they work together to prevent or settle armed rebellions. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at uh, a combination of military and economic efforts between the three countries, but the main priority is the focus on the war on terror in the region. Now, we don't have the details yet as to where this funding is going to come from, how this is going to work logistically, but we do see that these three countries have banded together um, as Yusuf said, the ECOWAS intervention against Niger 
Mali and Burkina Faso immediately responded that this would be a declaration of war against them too. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing the three countries bind together and it almost seems like the Alliance has a raison d'etre of taking back power independence um, against France because, you know, France was forced to withdraw troops from Mali and Burkina Faso. And Mali did also recently ask the UN peacekeeping mission to leave too. So we are seeing... Um, almost as much as they are trying to be independent, we are seeing them unite and attack the war on terror almost from a regional perspective as opposed to with the help of foreign counterparts. Right. So, Alex, I want to come to this uh, sensitive question of uh, insurgency and terrorism uh, in the Sahel. Because Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso are also members of the France-supported G5 Sahel Alliance. Uh, that was a joint force together with Chad and Mauritania that was, you know, tackling armed groups in the region. Has the G5 and the French intervention in any way had any impact against the insurgency in the Sahel region? No, the G5 Sahel, the idea wasn't a French one originally, it was a Mauritanian one. So the idea was Mauritanian, and then the French kind of supported it because they were looking for an exit strategy at some point from the Sahel and thought that might be a better model for them. Uh, the problem of G5 Sahel was just how it was conceived because it excluded a number of major countries that, uh, that, that should have been involved in it. It should have been comprehensive. In fact, like the Nwakashot Initiative, which uh, was very comprehensive on paper, but hasn't been able to achieve very much. So the G5 Sahel is pretty dead now. Uh, three of the countries have, have, have had coups uh, and, and the, the whole initiative isn't really working. So this was already recognized in West Africa early this year. So again, not a French initiative, but the economic community of West African states was talking uh, uh, in Guinea-Bissau at a summit, uh, and then later on th this year, in June and July, mm -hmm. about setting up a standby force that could respond to putschists and to the anti-insurgency. Uh, anti, um, uh, anti uh, and uh, there was discussion of whether MINUSMA, which uh, Tulu mentioned is pulling out of, uh, out of uh, Mali, whether some of their equipment uh, could be repurposed for that particular um, op uh, in operation of creating a standby force. So unfortunately the Niger coup has happened uh, since then and has complicated things. But uh, there's been very clear thinking about ECOWAS to have its own agency and not having foreign militaries. That means no French, potentially no Americans in the future, but that also includes no Russians, having an ECOWAS force to respond to the security crisis in, in, in West Africa. So, Tulu, let's look at that, um, the effects of the G5 Sahel on the insurgency in the Sahel region. Because going by the challenges Alex has mentioned and those that were faced by the G5, what challenges or, or obstacles do you foresee, though, in the implementation of this new security uh, pact, particularly when it comes to fighting the insurgency? The main issue is the rhetoric. So we're looking at an, a, a radical Islamist jihadist narrative. So Mali and Burkina Faso have been under a state of emergency since 2017 due to these type of attacks. They've had over 4,000 fatalities in 2019. Mm -hmm. We're looking at 2 million people who have been displaced from spillover violence in Burkina Faso. Um, so it's more about, yes, we're looking at removing foreign boots on the ground, but we also have this near enemy 
on near enemy soil. So what that means is if we're looking at coups, coups, um, military-led coups are to throw over the government, the existing incumbent government, because the idea is that they're corrupt, they're not handling the insurgency adequately enough, they're not countering terrorism or radical Islamist thought um, fast enough or effectively enough. So that's the far enemy on near enemy soil. The far enemy would be the French or right. the, the Americans. So now, if we're looking at um, a response led by African countries, we're also having to be um, wary or pay attention to the near enemy. That means those who are deemed to be corrupt um, on near enemy soil. So we're still going to have the issue of winning the hearts and minds of civilians, having a unified um, group of individuals rather than division. And we see this a lot in Nigeria. We see um, ethnic divisions. We see religious divisions. And it's the same across the region. There are lots of divisions. It is part, um, if I simplify it, it is one of the effects of post-colonial um, independence. But it's also, there are so many economic, infrastructural challenges that if you have a narrative of radical Islamists right. who are trying to win the hearts and minds, of course, when you're countering it, it goes far beyond just guerrilla warfare or just who's in charge now, who, which president has been overthrown, which military um, hunter is leading. There are so many other complex issues to solve when tackling the war on terror. So, Yusuf, I want to come back um, on this whole war on terror. So it's you both, Yusuf and Alex. So let me start off with you, Yusuf. Going by the fact that this insurgency erupted in northern Mali in 2012, spread to Niger and Burkina Faso by 2015, and despite the G5 nation, uh, G5 Sahel force, ECOWAS, French troops, American troops, we're now looking at where these three countries find themselves when it comes to terrorism. Do they have the capabilities to contain the insurgency at all? The uh, capacity of these countries, their militaries, I, I, I don't really see them being able to bear the brunt of what they need to do to secure their sovereign borders. You, you, we're talking about vast territories here. Um, if we had the G5 and the Trans-Sahara um, uh, partnerships fail, ultimately, means that there were deficits in place that um, made them to fail um, the French or the Americans not sharing enough intelligence or uh, things like the French being on ground and primarily maintaining their, their, their presence there after their commercial interests. Um, they weren't really in the fight to put away these terrorists and um, it's, it's told quite a bit on the countries actually. Um, look, Insecurity and the, the, the whole problem is one right. of a governance issue. Um, had they actually put more efforts into ensuring good governance and uh, careful resource management of resources, then I don't think would be, you know, in this, they would be in this problem at all. Alex, your view here, I mean, what are the chances of the uh, Sahelian three in uh, containing the insurgency? How much of a Herculean task will this be? So, look, if we look slightly elsewhere, there have been improvements uh, related to the Lake Chad Basin, also in northeast Nigeria. I was there recently, so the military has improved in 
terms of some of its counterinsurgency operations. Northern Mozambique, much further away from what we're talking about, significant improvement. So where, where we have an epicenter problem is what we're focusing on today, which is Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, and Mali. And even actually in Niger, the security situation was improving. The coup, the driver for the coup uh, that happened two months ago, mm -hmm. is a lot more about elite politics uh, in, in, the, in Niamey, the capital, than it is about deteriorating security, which was, I agree, the uh, key driver for coups in, in Burkina Faso and, and uh, in Mali. Um, I, I think both other speakers have talked that the deficit of governance, the, the difficulties of trying to get development into contested, difficult security areas, very weak capability of, of, of uh, the, the militaries in both uh, Burkina Faso and in Mali means it's a very worrying situation because three putschist regimes are worried about what ECOWAS was threatening, which was an intervention to restore constitutional order. That now has become a, a greater driver, which is about their own regime survival, than betterment of the civilians and bringing development into really contested zones and eradicating and reducing poverty, unfortunately. Although the original drivers for these coups um, were popular, there was legitimacy to them. So right. these are complicated processes. All right, a very complicated process indeed, but we're going to take a short break on that note. And when we come back, we will look at how France's departure may change the dynamics of the conflict in the Sahel and what lies ahead. To stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with me from Abuja, Yusuf Ibrahim Bako in Virginia via Zoom, Tulu Akerele, and in London via Zoom as well, Alex Vines. Let me uh, go straight to you, Yusuf, because these three countries, and I want to look at uh, the ECOWAS intervention and where that has left uh, the region now, because these three countries were suspended from the regional bloc ECOWAS. What is the reaction today of the regional body regarding the formation of the security pact? What impact could this have, for instance, on the importance of ECOWAS in the region? The bloc should actually engage them further and deeper in discussion, bring them closer to say that we understand your problems, but understand that you cannot deal with your situation mm -hmm. in isolation. It's not a feasible uh, uh, path for you to actually chart. Um, in the interim, it may actually, or in the moment, it may... Um, remove some of the potency from ECOWAS. However, ECOWAS is doing a whole bunch of other things mm -hmm. in the region, uh, spending great time and effort and resources on actual development projects that changes people's lives. So ECOWAS really is not going to be, I mean, I've read a couple of things um, which for me was a bit of a shock horror moment that they've written off ECOWAS because it didn't go in and it spoke so bellicosely. And again, I will say this, there was no bellicose in what the uh, current presidency and leadership of ECOWAS was saying. Right. They did say, yes, there is um, 
precedence for this. We've seen it in Gambia. We've seen it before. ECOWAS has a rich history of intervening in civil wars and actually ending civil wars in the region. So it's got to play the, the strong arm. But ECOWAS is going nowhere. It will get stronger. It will develop. It will pull in these um, Sahelian three. And right. of course, this revolution in Sahelian affairs will ultimately, I think, make ECOWAS and the region stronger. Right. Tulu, is this a setback for ECOWAS though? We can't reduce it to a step back or a step forward. Things will happen within the region whether or not ECOWAS exists. Um, so I think it, I wouldn't consider it a step back. I would um, echo use of sentiments in the fact that, yes, when um, ECOWAS did mention there is a potential um, to use force to restore constitutional rule, um, and allegedly with France's backing, which wouldn't help at all, I think as we saw the response being um, from the other two countries that we will take this as a declaration of war, I think we start to see ECOWAS is definitely going to shift its approach to ensure that this new alliance feels part of ECOWAS, doesn't feel a sense of division. But again, um, as Alex also said, these are things that will be moving and changing, and it's not as simple as, um, you know, they're on their own, these three. So I think we just have to see how it plays out, but I definitely do not see it as being a step back. Alex, you know, some analysts are seeing the birth of the um, alliance of the Sahel states as a sign of the continued erosion of French influence in that part of Africa. Which new partners are we seeing countries turning to now? Um, if you're in Benin, uh, the, the, the Beninois have been asking for Rwandan uh, security support. And so, and the Rwandans have made a pitch saying, well, they've done very well in Central African Republic and in Mozambique, so why don't they come into West Africa? So a big question for West Africans is, do they want foreign militaries, meaning also African militaries that are not from West Africa? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a particular issue. ECOWAS takes the view that, they, that ECOWAS sorts its uh, own problems out with its own people, and that they are, as, as Yusuf mentioned, brothers. So we'll have to see. But there are plenty of other security offers on. Um, uh, Turkey has offered uh, security. The EU is now uh, offering a new, in fact, it's a, uh, announced a new EU training uh, mission for the coastal states to, to kind of build up capability. I've just come back from Ghana. I was there all last week discussing what the Accra initiative is, is achieving and sharing uh, intelligence and information between countries like Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, and, and Ghana. So there's a lot going on. Uh, I do believe, uh, like, like Yusuf, that the future is a stronger regional economic community body that kind of can, can regulate this. And I've seen ECOWAS perform very well 20 years ago when I was stationed for the UN in Liberia at the end of the Charles Taylor regime. So it can work. And I think uh, we are at a watershed here, but it will be a bumpy pathway. Right. I want to get your thoughts, all of you, on the way forward here because I want to find out what are the long-term plans and aspirations of these countries in their fight against insurgents? How do you envision uh, you know, them achieving a lasting stability in that uh, region affected by jihadist insurgents? Let me start off with you, Yusuf. It's about the region and the regional leader, Nigeria, stepping up to the plate and pulling in these uh, uh, countries closer. N Niger and Nigeria, for example, uh, being a northern Nigerian, I understand this very, very well. There's literally no border between us. 
um, southern uh, Niger and northern Nigeria. Um, a lot of families have um, cousins across the border. It's just a line in the sand for us. So we, we need to really step up and show leadership in the region. But we also need others in the region to show leadership. Um, Alex had mentioned previously about Macky Sall and uh, Ouattara of uh, Cote d'Ivoire. For me, these two people are vestiges of Franc Afrique, and um, their motivations are pretty clear right now in where their allegiances actually lie. Um, so I, 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 I tend to hold what they say with a bit of uh, skepticism, and I also think that if anything's going to happen in the region, Nigeria is going to determine a lot of that. We've always, always expressed our independence once it comes to foreign uh, relations and foreign affairs. Um, our history clearly, clearly states the Afrocentrism of our foreign policy, which is stated in our constitution. And we will give 100% to make sure that whatever happens in the region is Nigerian-led. It needs to be, because we are the market, but we also believe that the rest of the region needs to develop its markets so that we can truly be integrated and have, um, you know, good governance, uh, uh, a region that is thriving. We've got shared culture, traditions, food, and like I said, family. So it only makes sense for us to coalesce and combine and actually enhance our um, cooperation. Um, I'm optimistic about the future, right. but we have to actually pay attention. Alex, uh, you have adopted uh, you know, a very neutral tone there. What's your view? The West African space, ECOWAS, is vast. Um, I uh, do agree that, that Nigeria is the regional power uh, and there's an opportunity with a president in uh, in, in, in Nigeria now that has an interest in, in, in regional politics and has a vision for ECOWAS. It's unfortunate the coup occurred when it did. If it had a coup, coup in Niger, it occurred in a year's time. I think um, uh, it was ECOWAS reform plus the Tunubu administration would be, have been better placed to have reacted to it than they, they did initially. Um, I, I don't know if the, uh, the, the full destiny of West Africa is going to be determined by a Nigeria hegemon, uh, and, I, uh, and so I do think that uh, what uh, the, the, are the visions of francophone uh, countries, especially the big ones like Cote d'Ivoire and, uh, and Senegal, also play a, a, a significant part in the future of, of, of uh, the regional economic community. And indeed, um, it, it will need to have common vision to fight the scourge of, of, uh, of insurgency, which is a significant worry, particularly in Burkina Faso and, and Mali, uh, uh, but could still now deteriorate in, in Niger also. Itulu, you have the final word here. I would definitely like to echo the sentiments of both speakers. I think we're looking at good governance, leading by example. I think the end of foreign boots on ground is something that will definitely help with internal tensions. Um, and finally, I do agree, I've said it before, the hearts and minds of civilians. I know that we are currently struggling and focusing on governance and countering coups, but we also can't let um, the radical jihadist narrative gather any more traction than it already has. So I think there needs to be an intentional um, focus on resources, and when I say resources, I mean 
minerals, West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is home to a plethora of resources, whether it's minerals, gold, oil, etc., natural resources. If we can figure out how to take more of this back internally, um, trade, things like that, and increase the workforce of locals, um, but not for exportation. And if it is exportation, we're looking at building the capita of right. those countries themselves. So I think we're looking at a number of um, different approaches, but again, it all boils down to good governance, tackling the narrative of the hearts and minds of civilians against radical Islamist rhetoric, and of course, um, just making sure we have uh, incentives for people to not join those organizations, those insurgencies, and building up the capabilities and capacities of um, those in the region themselves. Indeed, a very optimistic note there. Thank you also very much for being a part of this discussion. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests in Abuja, Yusuf Ibrahim Bako, International Affairs and Security Analyst in Virginia, joining us via Zoom from the United States, Tulu Akirele, Security and Counterterrorism Expert, and also joining us from London via Zoom, Alex Vines, Director of the Africa Program, Chatham House. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and X, formerly Twitter. And you can also watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To join us again next week for more at Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, it's bye-bye.
Can you talk about Malcolm X at Howard in 1952? What effect did his speech have? Well, that takes me back quite a bit, you know. Um, we had quite some problems at Howard University with the administration of students. Uh, they had uh, stifled a lot of intellectual activity, which could help uh, to uh, liberate the minds of the students and uh, create the type of activities that we needed as uh, student activists. And uh, we thought then of putting together a project called the Project Awareness. And we wrote the Project Awareness proposal. Michael Thurwell at that time was uh, with the school newspaper. I think it was called The Hilltop. And he was also part of our group. And uh, we wrote up a big, intellectually sounding, flowing project to bring people to debate with ideas, to bring stimulus to the university. And the administration was so happy they agreed to it. Because, you know, they said, oh, Piney, they're going to leave all these uh, problems of activism and come and do some real intellectual and academic work. So they signed it. And uh, Thurwell uh, sent out a press release to, uh, I think, the Washington Post and other newspapers and also uh, some news releases to the uh, universities, George Washington University, Georgetown University, American University. And I got some comments, and they all said, you know, that wow, Howard is doing this. So the Washington Post even ran a big story on Howard, uh, the administration, how liberal they were. I'm coming to it. I know you're getting there. But, um, I'll continue. Uh, we, uh, the administration had uh, then been uh, praised by the Washington Post after approving the project. Our first debate was Malcolm X versus Bayard Rustin. Of course, it was important. Uh, once the administration saw Malcolm X, I mean, they didn't know what to do. They didn't want him there, but they'd just been praised for being liberal, so they were already finished. There was nothing they could do. And Bayard Rustin was brought. The debate was important for us in uh, NAG, the Nonviolent Action Group at that time, around SNCC, because there were great divisions. And Bayard Rustin and Malcolm X posed these uh, divisions, the approaches towards the uh, solution. Of course, Bayard Rustin's uh, approach was one of... Uh, total commitment to nonviolence as a philosophy uh, with the aim of integrating into the American uh, capitalist system uh, almost, uh, well, questioning the capitalist system but not to a profound degree. Malcolm, of course, was the total opposite, not seeing nonviolence as a philosophy, almost uh, denouncing it as a, a tactic, if you will, calling for a violent uh, clash of arms against uh, the American capitalist system and not for integration into it but uh, separation from it while seeking its destruction, either through our hands or the hands of uh, Allah, as he himself would say it. So the Malcolm X debate and the Bayard Rustin debate had a profound effect upon the nonviolent action group and consequently SNCC because of the role that the nonviolent action group played and of course consequently the country because of the role that SNCC played in the country. Well, it was... Yeah. Well, uh, in the first place, we had the struggles there about uh, nationalism uh, versus non-nationalism or straight integration. The question of determination, all the problems of the values of the societies were being raised at that time. And this uh, debate helped to clarify for all of us all of those issues and drive a clear line between those of us who really became clear nationalists as opposed to non-nationalists. And from this nationalism here, if you will look in the Student Nonviolent Coin Committee, you would see that the Nonviolent Action Group from D.C. brought it in in full uh, flavor. It was from uh, this point that it can be dated where nationalism took its firm root and became dominant inside of the Nonviolent Action Group. It was from Malcolm's debate. And how did you personally feel? I, mean, what, I what felt. 
Well, I worked with Project Awareness, and I remember very well saying to them that I'm going to do all the work that needs to be done before Malcolm X gets here. I will sweep floors, I will lick envelopes. But the night that Malcolm X comes here, I am doing no work, I'm sitting in the audience. And as a matter of fact, I had reserved seats in front, you know, and the place was packed. First they thought they couldn't even get in, but since I was working on the project, I reserved it. I sat in front through the whole debate. I did all the work for the committee, but during the debate I was in front. As a matter of fact, the Nation of Islam, in their newspaper, Mohammed Speaks, carried my photo. Nobody knew who I was at that time, you know, as students who were enthusiastic at Malcolm's uh, report. Malcolm finished them, and for me, after that, anytime they said anything, I just used to send them straight to Malcolm. He gave us all the intellectual uh, arguments and opened up the way for us to show clearly an intellectual basis for a nationalism and an uh, ability to uh, smash uh, all uh, ideas that were in contradiction to it. Malcolm opened up the way, and more importantly, he opened up the way for, non for violence as a legitimate weapon in a struggle for uh, human rights. At what point did his uh, his philosophy probably really took hold in SNCC, probably, you will see it's beginning by uh, Selma, Alabama, where uh, Silas Norman, who was our project director, along with uh, Brother Harris, the uh, photographer, uh, began to, uh, as a matter of fact, what it was, was that from New York... Um, All right, well, after uh, his uh, debate against... Malcolm's after Malcolm's uh, debate with Bayard Rustin, where he thoroughly crushed all of Bayard's uh, Rustin ideas. Okay, well, after the 1962 debate at Howard University with the Nonviolent Action Group, Malcolm's ideas began to take firm root inside of SNCC through uh, NAG, only in uh, just one way, of course, through other contacts. Uh, probably its most systematic uh, introduction into SNCC would come in Selma, Alabama, where Doug and Tina Harris, who were on SNCC staff in Selma, Alabama at that time, through their contacts in New York, would have uh, every week Malcolm's speech from the Audubon taped and sent down to the uh, Selma SNCC office, where copies uh, would be had and would be passed around within the uh, SNCC staff people. So working outside of Selma in Lowndes County, uh, Bob Manser and myself were to ensure that every week we would get that tape and we would play Malcolm X throughout the week inside of Lowndes County. Of course, you know, it was here that he was invited uh, by Silas Norman, who was then our project, uh, project director before I went to Alabama. This would be uh, January of 1965, just before the uh, Selma March. He was invited by SNCC to come in. So I think he also has a profound effect upon SNCC because John Harris and... John Harris goes within and... Okay. Could you talk about why invites him to Well, that's what's about because I had to go back because it was 64. That's why I had to go back to... Uh, right, but yeah. specifically 65, why did SNCC invite Malcolm to Well, they invited him, number one, because uh, SNCC took a trip to Africa in 1964, invited by uh, President Sekou Touré, incidentally, of uh, Guinea. And uh, from Guinea, the SNCC delegation continued. Uh, Malcolm X had also taken a trip to uh, Africa and had preceded SNCC on this trip. And uh, through some coincidence, it seemed that the SNCC people followed in Malcolm's footsteps in the same countries. And I remember John Lewis, when giving the report, having to say that, he said, you don't know the effect that Malcolm X has. Every country we went into where Malcolm X spoke, we were asked in our position in relationship to Malcolm's position. 
So many people in SNCC uh, who didn't even know who Malcolm was began to uh, sit up and take notice. So here in SNCC, it became first thought, right, Malcolm X is having an effect where you don't even think he's having an effect, so people began to look closer. Of course, the closer they looked to Malcolm X, the quicker they got hooked on Malcolm X. So by 1965, uh, Selma, Alabama was prepared to invite SNCC into uh, Selma to speak. No one in SNCC could... Uh, oppose it. As a matter of fact, everyone was happy. Of course, the Mississippi Project, since 1964, had made uh, contact with Malcolm X, with Mrs. Hamer, and we had sent our youth wing out from the Delta, where I was uh, congressional director, to have a meeting with uh, Malcolm X. So the meetings in uh, Malcolm X were continuing, but its real profound impact was probably the 1962 debate with Bayard Rustin. I go back to this point because Bayard Rustin had an effect also upon SNCC people. You know, uh, Snick's decision to go into Lyons County comes in the fall of 1964 after the uh, Democratic uh, Convention in Atlantic City, where the majority of Snick people uh, prior to this had voted a decision, a political decision, that Snick would create a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And this Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party would challenge the legitimate Democratic Party of Mississippi, would defeat them because of the blatant, illegal, and unjust stance which the regular Democratic Party took at that time, headed by uh, Eastland, the racist, and uh, they would march into the Democratic Party. There was a minority position that this was not correct. The Democratic Party could not be depended upon. It had no, uh, there was no basis, in fact, on which to depend upon it, neither moral nor any other position. But the stick majority position was this should be done. Of course, in 1964, when the Democratic Party responded in the manner in which it responded, and SNCC would not accept that response, the majority of SNCC people... Okay, so yeah, I wouldn't want to go into that. I was... No, you can just say. Okay. <coughs> When the uh, Democratic Party <coughs> refused to uh, seat the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and, in fact, seated the racist uh, Democratic Party with the compromise, which, is, which it called the compromise, was unacceptable to SNCC, the majority of people in SNCC had no alternative for SNCC's political strategy. Those who had, in the beginning, opposed the decision to work uh, with the challenge for the Democratic Party, but worked with it anyway because they were disciplined to the organization, though outvoted, were the only ones with a pliable alternative, a viable alternative at that time. They presented an alternative of organizing the African community outside of the Democratic Party, independent political party. Alabama was selected, and Lowndes County as a county which uh, we had not done much work in. As we said now, after the uh, failure of the uh, Democratic Party to respond properly to the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, it was clear for some of us in SNCC that uh, no longer could we talk of any way connection with the Democratic Party. Not only can we not talk of direction, but we must go into direct organizing in opposition to the Democratic Party. Uh, since Mississippi had the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, those of us in SNCC who were supporting this policy thought of Alabama. Alabama represented for us a, uh, a great climate. George Wallace was then the head of the 
Alabama Democratic Party. The Alabama Democratic Party was racist. Its symbol at that time had a white rooster, a white cock, a chicken, a male chicken rooster, and it had the words of white supremacy. That was the official emblem of the Democratic Party of Alabama. So here it would be easy for us to tell our people, hey, look, this party is not for us. We need our own party. So the conditions there were clear, and we could move in and not only organize our own party, but organize in opposition to this uh, white superior, superiority uh, party, this uh, racist party which had white superiority as its uh, slogan and emblem. And what was it like first coming in? I mean, just thinking that you're one person going in, what was it like? Well, uh, it was different uh, in the first place because uh, before... It was uh, different than in other SNCC projects where you just went in quietly, simply because our decision to go into uh, Selma, Alabama, was approved, uh, I think, by uh, late October, November of uh, 1964. So we would be in Alabama in 1965. So we decided we would make Alabama early 1965. The Alabama staff, under the direction of Silas Norman at that time, uh, through our work with Doug and Tina Harris, and we said already began contact with uh, Malcolm X. So Malcolm X was invited. Well, of course, you know, Martin Luther King is a great mobilizer, one of the greatest mobilizers this century has produced. And uh, Bob Mance and I uh, understood in uh, contradiction with a lot of other SNCC people at that time that uh, he was going to pull out the strongest people as the march went right through Lowndes County. Since the march was Lowndes County from Selma to uh, Montgomery, Dallas County to Montgomery County, go through Lowndes. So all we did was we followed the march, did not participate in the march. We followed the march, and everywhere people from Lowndes County lent their lands, brought food, came out to greet, made some participation in the march. We went to those people, collected their names, sat down there, spoke with them, told them that we are coming after the march to do reorganizing, not just passing through. So we followed the march, Bob Mance and myself, all the way up onto Lowndes County, the end of the county line. By that time, once the march was over, we sat down for the first time as a SNCC organizer going into a county as uh, terrible as Lowndes County, because Lowndes County had a population, I'm sure, of close to 85%, uh, 85% of us, and... Uh, when you look at a county like Lowndes County, which had the history of terrorism that it did, 85% of the population are us owning no land, all sharecroppers. And what was even more important statistically was that Lowndes County, which was between Selma and Montgomery, and Montgomery seen activity since 1957 with Martin Luther King's uh, bus boycott, and Selma, since the early 60s when SNCC were uh, in uh, Selma, there wasn't one of us registered to vote in uh, Lowndes County. That's how strong the terrorism uh, was uh, there. So this was the first time that as a SNCC organizer, Bob Manson and myself, we were able to go into a county with a full list of names thanks to the march that was conducted by Martin Luther King of the strongest people, those who were unafraid, willing to participate. So for us, the organizing task had been done because as an organizer, this work can take you sometimes as much as six months when you go into a county to find and to isolate the people. But this was given to us, and it was demographically broken down because the march had gone through the entire breadth of the county. So uh, when we sat down to work, matter of fact, it was deciding which group we wanted to uh, spend most of our time with out of all the strongs that we collected, strong people we collected, in order to spread out rapidly within the uh, county. And can you talk about your contact with Mr. Hewitt? 
Mr. Hewlett uh, was one of those people who uh, represents uh, some of the uh, mentality, political mentality of those in, uh, in Lowndes County. He was involved in the movement in Montgomery. Yeah, Mr. Hewlett represented some of those. He was worker and uh, farmer, or sharecropper, if you will, that is, in Lowndes County. Most of the people, it was agricultural con con county. Most of the people grew agricultural goods. But some of them, to uh, combine their income, were also workers. For example, maybe the husband will work and the wife and the children will carry on the agricultural work. This was the case of Mr. Hewlett, who was a worker in Montgomery and communicate, communicated every day. But he worked in the Martin Luther King uh, program, he even body, was a bodyguard of Martin Luther King's house when they dynamited King's house in Montgomery in uh, 56. Yet himself and some others who were workers in Montgomery still could not uh, spring a movement in Lowndes County. But since they had this experience and wanting always to get a movement in Lowndes County, the minute we walked in with a program for a movement and they could see the program was a clear program that would work, they immediately seized the program. So Mr. Hewlett represented one of those who had worked in Montgomery, wanted to bring these changes to Lowndes County, but uh, was incapable of working out the program only because of lack of organizational uh, support or organizational skill. So once SNCC came in with the organizational support and skill, he saw clearly, he jumped into it. So he was, uh, clearly came first front into the movement quickly because he had the experience from Montgomery and was uh, extremely instrumental in helping to rally uh, the population of Lowndes County towards the uh, cause of the struggle. Talk about your relationship now with uh, Jonathan Daniels. And you mentioned sitting down with him and saying that you were racist and explaining uh, Jonathan Daniels was a white uh, student, a sem seminarian student. I forgot which sect. Uh, it was a say, sem white seminarian uh, student. Jonathan Daniels was a white uh, seminarian student uh, studying uh, for the priesthood, uh, not Catholic. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I didn't want to make that specific. Anyway, he, uh, like many... Uh, Jonathan Daniels was a white uh, student who was uh, studying at a theological uh, seminary. And uh, he, and like many uh, white students who uh, were conscious of the responsibility, uh, came to see of what help he could be in advancing the cause of humanity. Uh, he came to apply to uh, work with uh, SNCC, and uh, because he'd heard of SNCC, he felt his politics was closely uh, allied with the politics of SNCC. But uh, doing the organizing work we were doing in Lowndes County, Alabama, just made it impossible for a white uh, student to do that type of work. Uh, we had no base in Lowndes County, so there was no way to protect him. And uh, if he were working with us, he'd be clearly a target of the Ku Klux Klan, that our work then would be just protecting him rather than doing uh, work. Uh, he inquired about working in Lowndes County with SNCC, and uh, people had told him, well, he should uh, see me, but that would be difficult to talk with me because I was a racist and uh, didn't like uh, white people, etc., etc. But uh, he, of course, had at least uh, courage to find out for himself, and so... When we sat down and discussed, he saw clearly the tactics and saw the correctness of uh, the position that SNCC had. He uh, was hoped, he hoped the conditions could be different, but they were not. At the same time, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which were also conducting some uh, campaigns in Alabama, 
took a uh, city in uh, Lowndes County, Fort Deposit, uh, not as capital, but a city at the end of the uh, county, and began to do some demonstrations in there around uh, integrating restaurants, etc., etc. Something that SNCC was not involved in at that time in the county. Well, Jonathan and I got to know each other quite a bit uh, after our first discussion, and he began to see it. We began to discuss. We meet quite often in uh, Selma, and uh, whenever I was there, he would uh, seek me out and we'd spend time together. Uh, I, I had a lot of appreciation for him. Uh, he was different uh, from the uh, regular activist uh, that came. He uh, tried to analyze the problems a little bit deeper, and he, too, were more interested in lasting solutions rather than the temporary ones. Uh, so uh, we got to uh, like each other, if you will, and uh, when the demonstrations uh, started, even unbeknown to me, he participated in them. So uh, I wasn't aware of the fact that he was arrested until I myself was arrested, although not involved in the demonstration at all, uh, was arrested and found out he was in jail, so I was arrested together due to an error made by the uh, police authorities in Lowndes County by uh, placing my arrest with theirs when in fact they were entirely separated. I was uh, released uh, from prison uh, before them. So I was released uh, probably a couple of hours before them. I went immediately to Selma to see our lawyers to sign bonds which I thought would make for their uh, release. I was returning immediately to uh, Selma when halfway to uh, between Selma and uh, no more than halfway, about 20 minutes from the Lowndes County uh, capital, Haynesville, I met a SNCC worker, Willie Vaughns, who informed me that uh, there was just a great shooting because he too was in jail, had just been released, and everybody uh, had scattered. So I immediately went to uh, Haynesville. Uh, the town was uh, quiet. I was alone. Uh, I was armed, and uh, there was nothing but uh, blood in front of the store, uh, which was closed. Uh, he had informed me that uh, Jonathan had been uh, killed. Uh, well, um, you know, I'd been around Snick for a while. Uh, he was not the first uh, that I'd seen uh, d uh, die, and had seen uh, those much closer to me die, and uh, certainly had not become immune to death, but I'd certainly known that in no way was it to stop or slow down my work. If anything, it was to intensify my work. So uh, I was uh, deeply... Uh, sorry about his death, but only sorry that he was the one who had to go, but then I had to analyze that someone had to go, uh, and uh, unfortunately it was uh, him. Uh, it uh, tightened uh, my sense of responsibility and uh, ensured me even more of the correctness of SNCC's position on the relationship of white workers. Uh, this effect would be felt deeper in SNCC later on in its time, but it's one of those things which came to affect those of us in SNCC and Alabama staff so strongly that our position was correct, that uh, to bring white workers in was just, in fact, to court uh, their death and uh, uh, slow down the, uh, the process of building up a strong nationalist force. You also mentioned carrying a weapon. At what point does nonviolent violence even as a tactic begin to fall apart? Oh, well, actually, I trace it to a period when... I'm, see, I'm chasing <laughs> the question of, we can go ahead, we can go ahead. Oh, the question of, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I thought I was just responding to your question. Yes, that's right. Um, at what point does that, does nonviolence even as a tactic break down? The question of uh, nonviolence uh, as a tactic or principle even breaking down in snake, I myself trace 
through a debate by uh, Charlie Cobb inside of SNCC. I remember once, and my memory is not clear on the years, but it's in the early 60s, he raised the question, he said, okay, I'm a SNCC worker, he said, I'm nonviolent. He said, but I'm working in Mississippi, and I have to work with peasant families there, sharecropper families, and uh, these families are not nonviolent. So he gives the example of Miss Hamer. He said, okay, I go to work Miss Hamer's house. Every time I go there as a SNCC fee representative, the terrorist uh, groups shoot into a house. So he said, if these terrorist groups are shooting into a house, even though I'm nonviolent, she's not, they have guns in the house. If they are returning fire to the terrorist groups, what is my position as a SNCC person? Nobody in SNCC answered the question. Nobody. And when the question was not answered, it was clear then. Every SNCC person should make their own individual decision. And the decisions were clear. Those of us, and SNCC never saw, the overwhelming majority of people in SNCC never saw nonviolence as a philosophy, as did those in SELC. For those in SNCC, it was just a tactic. If it could work, fine. If it can't work, we'll try something else. For SELC, it had to work at all times under all conditions. Nothing else could work, so it never came into the realm. So for those of us in SNCC who had this as a tactic, guns, uh, we began to carry guns uh, probably even a little bit before uh, this statement, which was in the early 60s, but I'm sure that by 1963, I would say 90% of your field staff in SNCC were carrying guns. Uh, of course, not publicly, but uh, I'm 90% of your field staff in Alabama and uh, Mississippi were definitely carrying guns by 1963. So would you say that you were also carrying guns in the same Oh, yes, but by Lowndes County, we had guns, no question about it. By Lowndes County, we were carrying guns. It, was, it would create problems for some SNCC people who were, called, were claiming to be conscientious objectors. So their problem was if they're conscientious objectors, they don't, can't be found with a gun. But those of us who were not claiming, claiming conscientious objection, it made no difference. For us to be better, why? You get busted for a gun charge, you won't have to go to the Army know how. Well, you know, uh, SNCC's research staff, uh, headed by Jack Menis in Atlanta, uh, was a strong arm for the work in SNCC. And uh, we had requested uh, Jack to do some research on the possibilities of independent uh, political parties in the state of Alabama. Luckily, it was very easy to form a uh, third party in Alabama, since the Democratic Party was so sure of its authority, it never paid much attention. All you had to do was to call yours, give yourself a name, you couldn't call yourself a political party until you had uh, received a certain percentage of votes in the election. But the law stipulated that you had to have a symbol. And perhaps one of the reasons the law stipulated this was because of the high rate of illiter illiter illiteracy in Alabama. And so this high rate of illiteracy meant that people could vote by the symbols of the organizations of political parties rather than by uh, reading them. So this was the law. So we had to come up with a symbol. So when we decided we had to come up with a symbol with the party, we asked any people to make suggestions. Well, of course, everyone was laughing at the symbol of the Democratic Party with the uh, white rooster and the words white supremacy. So Jennifer Lawson, who was on the SNCC staff, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was, uh, she was the one who came up with the Black Panther as the symbol. Well, of course, when the Black Panther came, everybody was happy and laughed. Oh, this Black Panther will eat up this white cock tomorrow. Let's, uh, so the, but unfortunately, we had not thought really at that time uh, that the uh, press media would uh, create uh, such uh, confusion over the symbol of a Black Panther. As a matter of fact, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, which was its name, which had the Black Panther as a symbol, never considered itself the Black Panther Party until the press 
began to call it the Black Panther Party. And uh, finally, we ourselves began to recognize the fears and uh, the entrenchments we were working with, so we understood the reaction. So unlike what the press had hoped, that we would change the symbol or run away from it, we became more determined in the symbol and became more arrogant about uh, the symbol. So everywhere, instead of calling the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, they would talk about the Black Panther Party, hoping to confuse us. So we'd say, well, anytime they call the Lowndes County Freedom Organization the Black Panther Party, it's for confusion because they don't call the Democratic Party the White Cock Party. So it's clear here it's for confusion. We're going to be the Black Panther Party because anyway, a Black Panther Party can always beat up a white cock party anywhere. Okay. Thank you. Well, you got one. Well, it was, of course, overwhelming. I'm sorry. If you could the uh, response uh, by the by our community to uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, Black Panther Party, to the participating working it, and to running in uh, running offices, running as of officials in it, was not at all difficult. As everywhere, the people are always ready to struggle for freedom. Uh, all they need is a program which shows how their organized force can come to uh, solve the obstacles in their path and they will immediately go for it. And the Lowndes County Freedom Organization represented that to them. So and very how is it important that SNCC organized Tent City? Uh, Tent City was organized, of course, this was just experience that SNCC had had from years before. I think we had done it as early as if my memory correctly serves me, and you can check it. I think Foreman had done it as early in, Nas in Tennessee outside of Tennessee with, um, so we'd already set up 10 cities uh, before. 10 cities were set up because the sharecroppers who were voting were being expelled from their land. And the hope was by the uh, terrorist uh, white landholders that by expelling them they would leave the county, being capable of voting, and would represent uh, an intimidation for the rest of uh, the voters. Well, we recognized this and they had to stay. We had some uh, people there who were strong in character and uh, strong, were not afraid of uh, injustice or terror, and they allowed uh, the expelled uh, sharecroppers to live on their uh, land. So we set up tent cities, again, for those who were expelled, to let it be clear to the uh, terrorists that we had no intention of moving from Lowndes County. The fight was going to be joined here, and we were going to do, win the battle on the uh, terrain of Lowndes County. Remember now, the first primary day we lost. I wasn't there. Well, I think that the struggle in SNCC had been brewing. We have discussed the struggle of Atlantic City uh, Convention and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And uh, here we would already see the uh, pro, what do you call it, when they begin to polarization that was occurring inside of SNCC. John's uh, policy was one which was good for SNCC in the early days. But if you took a clear look at John Lewis, he looked uh, more like a young Martin Luther King Jr. than anything else, a role which he himself was quite happy and pleased with. John was quite honored, and perhaps the biggest compliment he could be paid was after a meeting where he presented SNCC's program, somebody come and tell him, why, you sound just like Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Why, this was the highest compliment you could pay him. But he was out of touch with SNCC staff. He had not done organizing with SNCC staff. He had brought, come into SNCC as the chairman of SNCC. 
and served always as chairman. And in that role, most of his job was to put, uh, present uh, SNCC's program publicly across. I do not mean to imply here that he did not take uh, part in campaigns in the South or take part in going to jail. No, he took part in it. But again, these were not on long-going uh, programs, and he didn't do long-time organizing. He came from the tradition of mobilization, organization against uh, segregated facilities, not that of organizing in SNCC. So he had lost contact with the SNCC staff, which had gone harder into organizing, and as a result, took on more revolutionary policies than those which are dealing with short-term uh, goals of desegregating public uh, facilities. Thus, the uh, spread had already developed. The concept of nonviolence had uh, already been passed, surpassed him. The concept of integration and non-nationalism had also surpassed him. So because of his uh, policies and his uh, space between the SNCC field workers and himself, it was clear that he'd been alienated from the uh, SNCC staff. So the vote against him represented that. But more importantly, it represented the clear insight of the SNCC organizers that understood that the question of morality upon which King's organization depended to bring about changes in the community were not possible. The SNCC people had seen raw terror. And they understood properly that this raw terror had nothing to do with morality, but had to do clearly with power, a question of economic power of the exploitation of our people. And they clearly saw that the route to this uh, liberation came first through political organization of the masses of the people. Thus, uh, because of these clear insights, John policies were not capable of holding up with the direction SNCC had to go into. And what did you see your, your direction being when you took over? How did well, you work the our direction was clear. A heavy emphasis on nationalism. Strong, as strong as uh, Malcolm had it, as strong as we could get it. Clear, a strong policy on organizing the mass of the people, putting first before us the political organization of the masses as the only route to uh, clearly solving our problem. A strong emphasis on the point of the fact that nonviolence for us was a tactic and not a philosophy as it was for SCLC. Thus, since it was a tactic, we were at any time had the right as an organization to choose the appropriate tactics that would lead to the people's liberation. That meant that we were given ourselves the free choice of taking arms and using violence as a legitimate tactic to arrive at our noble ends, the liberation of our people. So. On these three, just these three beginning clear bases, you can see a clear distinction. It demonstrated itself, or manifested itself in clear uh, policies. For example, uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson, who was the president of the country, invited uh, SNCC staff to a White House tea to discuss uh, some, something or the other. But uh, John's position was we should go. My position was we didn't talk to this racist pig who was bombing Vietnam, that we had no discussion with him at all. And uh, this was just really the gap so even John, who before being elected, who before the uh, elections in SNCC had agreed to go to this, when I became chairman of SNCC, I refused absolutely to go. And uh, SNCC sent a very terse uh, message to Johnson, which you will not forget, because by, uh, by coincidence, the very same date that he picked for the uh, White House tea with us was the same date that a bomb was dropped on Hiroshima while the Vietnam War was occurring. So we told him that until he stops dropping bombs, we're not even talking to him. Okay, we are talking about the uh, meeting in the uh, hotel. Uh, the, um, the, the, meeting in the, the meeting in the Lorraine Motel. Uh, 
immediately after the shooting of uh, Meredith. Uh, we have to look at the scenery in the first place. I had just been elected uh, chairman of SNCC. In Mississippi, the uh, route of the march was a route in the second congressional district. I was chairman of the second congressional district before going to Lowndes County. Every project in that area, I had opened myself. I had spent time in jail in probably every area in there. I knew all the strong people on a personal basis. I had slept in their houses when they were shot into by uh, terrorist groups in the South. Uh, all of that area was SNCC area, so we knew this area properly, and we knew this area was ready for black power among the mass of the people. So here we were clear. The shift also of uh, King from Selma, Alabama to... Uh, Meredith March was clearly different. At Selma, Alabama, SELC walked through as they wanted, did what they wanted, exactly as they wanted. SNCC had little chance, even though, as I said, SNCC uh, factions were fighting against uh, SELC. But in the Meredith March, SNCC was in a stronger position. Politically, it had more respect as an organization. It had the militant segment of, the, of our community 100% uh, behind it. So consequently here, you could see that there was really, 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 SNCC had a different position, and SNCC recognized it. When we came to the meeting at the motel, uh, Lorraine Motel, after uh, spending time with Meredith, there was Mr. Wilkins of the NAACP, Mr. Young of the National Urban League, there was Mr. McKissick of the Congress of Racial Equality, there was Dr. King representing SCLC, there was, if my memory serves me correctly, Ms. Andy Devine of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, around with Mr. McKissick, there were local organizers in core, if my memory serves me correctly, I think Dave Dennis, and then there were SNCC staff. We recognized the SNCC staff early in the meeting that any time SNCC, core, SCLC, Urban League, and NAACP do a joint project, that King always walks down the middle because SNCC and core goes to the left, NAACP and Urban League goes to the right, and then King is allowed to walk down the middle. So we recognized from the beginning, if we eliminate from this march NAACP and Urban League, and if you have SNCC and Core and King, if SNCC and Core is on the left, King cannot stay on the right, he'll be forced to move closer to SNCC and Core. So for SNCC's policy to become stronger, of course, we needed King to come closer to it, and the elimination of uh, Wilkins and uh, Young. Of course, to eliminate them from the march would not be difficult. SNCC was really the only one that could say in the state of Mississippi it had statewide projects. The only other organization having uh, workers on a daily basis, serious workers, in the state of Mississippi was the Congress of Racial Equality, but they were down south in the uh, Canton area and uh, just below the area of the march, but they did have workers there, and their workers next to SNCC were the second, but in comparison to SNCC, it were few. The NAACP had no projects, but they had strong individuals who commanded respect, such as Medgar Evers in the house in Greenwood, Mississippi, where I slept every night. It was the house of Mr. Green. He was the NAACP leader in Greenwood, Mississippi, and many of us SNCC people. So while we had respect, Amzi Moore was an NAACP man. So the NAACP had strong individuals in the state who were respected, but they had no projects. And these individuals themselves, in order even to move themselves, had to depend upon SNCC such as Amzie Moore, came to depend more upon SNCC than he did upon the NAACP. Consequently, we knew politically we had the area. Thus, our first task was to eliminate Wilkins and Young uh, from the meeting. So through some uh, tactics, uh, we eliminated them from the meeting. How did you do that? Well, the tactics were uh, tactics, well, you know, we were young. 
and uh, history was upon us and pressures were upon us and uh, perhaps when you reflect in hindsight as they always say perhaps the tactics were not the uh, most appropriate or the most correct but at least at that point they were effective and the tactics used there was to uh, scream at uh, Mr. Wilkins and uh, Mr. Young and to uh, insult them and to uh, make it appear as if they were lackeys of the white power structure and that their only task in the march was to water it down and to put forth the uh, sentiments and the policies of the white establishment in the country. Uh, both Mr. Young and uh, Mr. Wilkins, uh, before they could get a chance to deny it, were booed out by uh, insults and even some curses. So Mr. Wilkins first, uh, packing up his uh, briefcase, informed us that never would he participate in anything with any people like this, and especially with me, and uh, walked out the door. Uh, we were elated, but there was still Mr. Young left. So uh, we turned our and directed our attentions to him, and he too soon uh, followed. During the entire speech, Dr. Martin Luther King said absolutely nothing during this uh, intercourse where we were trying to, uh, through our verbal uh, abuse, intimidate them from participating in the, in the uh, march. And it was a verbal abuse to the highest uh, order, of the highest order. Uh, when they left and they finally gone, I quickly turned to Dr. King, who had never seen me in this light, but who had known me for years and uh, couldn't understand exactly what was happening. But we also knew that while King would not attack Young and Wilkins, he would also be happy for them to be out the way because if they were out the way, he would in fact have the limelight over myself and the McKissick. So the tactics were good for him, even though he would not participate in them or might even condemn them. But once they left, I turned to him and I said, okay, Dr. King, let's get on with our march. Well, anyone who doesn't know Dr. Martin Luther King knows that he loves uh, humanity. So uh, having the opportunity and the honor of uh, knowing Dr. King could only fire more my enthusiasm for him, for the love of the people he had, because unlike others who don't know him, they know he loves the people. I had a chance to work with him and actually see this love uh, manifest itself. So... Uh, I've always had the greatest uh, love and uh, respect uh, for King, if for no other reason, because he loved our people. And because he loved our people, he would not compromise, or he would never way become corrupted. This I knew. And uh, for this reason, I appreciate him more than... I always appreciate people simply because they are honest in relationship to uh, our people's policy. So as a, as a young man in SNCC, even before becoming a, uh, taking a position of a leadership in SNCC, uh, Dr. King and I grew on uh, many terms. I received him many places, and SNCC had uh, made me in charge of uh, receptions for him in many, many places. Uh, in Washington, D.C., while a student there, and he came to give a uh, talk at a nonviolent seminar where I represented SNCC. I was also given the task by SNCC to represent SNCC in meetings with him and to be of assistance to him there in Washington, D.C., and this would be about uh, 62 or 63. 
Uh, of course, later on in our works, we'd bump shoulders. When I went into Atlanta, I would go and eat at his house. Uh, our relationships were very strong, even where we had uh, political disagreements. Uh, I'm reminded of the war in Vietnam. You know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was the first one to take a position against the war. And not only against the war, but for the destruction of the draft. Of course, uh, SCLC did not take this position. And at that time, I was serving as chairperson of uh, SNCC. And uh, recognizing that we were being isolated politically, I instinctively understood that once King takes a position against the war in Vietnam, we will no longer be isolated. Thus, uh, my task inside of SNCC politically was to put pressure on King to make him take a stand on the war in Vietnam. We understood from the people that I selected to help in this process that here we were going to use nothing but nonviolence love with him. You know, our statement was, we're going to beat him with nonviolence and love. It was clear that uh, his uh, philosophy made it impossible for him not to take a stand against the war in Vietnam. I remember one time just joking with him, I said, you remember, I forgot the name of the brother, but there was a brother whom he remembered, and the brother was in Vietnam and got shot. I said, you remember so-and-so? He said, yeah, he said, where is he? I said, he got shot. He said, what, where? I said, in Vietnam. I said, yeah, I said, you didn't tell him not to go in Vietnam, be nonviolent there. You told him to be nonviolent in Mississippi. He didn't get shot there, but he got shot in Vietnam. You should have told him to be nonviolent in Vietnam. That was your problem. You didn't carry your stuff like you say you're supposed to carry it. These are just examples of the way that I would... Uh, but it got to such a point that I remember I was in Atlanta on the night he was going to make his statement, uh, the Sunday he was going to make his statement against the war in Vietnam. He called me in Atlanta. He said, what you doing? He said, tomorrow Sunday. He said, you're going to be a good Christian and go to church? I said, well, like a good heathen, I'm going to work for the people. I got office paperwork. I'll be working since 6 o'clock in the morning. He said, well, I want you to come to church. I said, come to church. Where? He said, Ebenezer. I said, uh, what's happening there? He said, I'm preaching. I said, well, you know, okay, I can always come here. You preach, you know, because even though I don't believe in your stuff, you make me tap my feet, you know. We joked. And he said, well, I really want you to come tomorrow. I said, okay, I'll come. He said, because uh, tomorrow I'm going to make my statement against the war in Vietnam. And uh, I think between us there must have been... 35 seconds of silence. And then I said to him, I'm going to be on the front seat of your church. And uh, the next morning, I got Cleve Sellers. I said, I got good news for you. And we went, and we sat on the front row of the church, and he gave one I consider to be one of his most profound speeches. You know, unfortunately, King is just becoming commercial, and most people don't know him. They think, for example, his I Have a Dream speech is one of his best speeches. But if you know King... I have a dream is one of his most uh, vulgar speeches. I mean, just the Vietnam speech was a powerful speech. King's uh, I have a dream speech. Uh, the uh, speech against the war in Vietnam is a very beautiful speech. I say one of the reasons why I have a great deal of love and respect for King was his love for the people and consequently his honesty. And King was so honest that he could criticize himself publicly. And sometimes if one would listen to him, the words he used were very sharp. In the speech on uh, Vietnam, he has a quote, if I remember correctly, it says, there is a point where caution can become cowardice. And he was speaking about himself, because when asked to make a statement on the war in Vietnam, he kept uh, using caution as excuse. And after a while, he began himself, because in our, in our propaganda against him, certainly we never used it, and it had never even dawned on me, but he himself said it, that there comes a point where caution can uh, border on cowardice. Can you talk about that speech and how you felt and how the crowd responded? The uh, speech, as I said, was probably one of his best speeches. He used words in that speech that I could never use. I mean, if I were to use those words, I would be dismissed as uh, irresponsible. But he said, the United States government is one of the greatest purveyors of violence in the world today.
he clearly showed now the necessity of non of nonviolent principles hooking up. But more importantly, he showed that the struggle of the of the community of the <laughs> okay, ten four three time go. A king's speech on uh, Vietnam, of course, you must understand the setting. It's made in his church. So, uh, I mean, it's his turf. I mean, anything he says here, these people will accept, uh, not uh, for any other reason except for the love they know that he has for them, which he himself has demonstrated over years. Uh, they know this from the fact that uh, as a man, he could get riches doing uh, many other things, speaking in other bigger churches even, but uh, he's totally refused. So when I say that he's in his turf and they will follow him, I don't want to appear that they will just follow him blindly. No, this uh, blind following which he receives from his congregation, he merits from his service and his love of his uh, congregation. So you can understand the setting. He can say everything he said. He wants to, number one, first show that uh, nonviolence has to be applied everywhere. It cannot be just segregated to the struggle uh, of our people inside the United States. He wants to also show that it must be a vital force in uh, world uh, politics and in uh, world uh, struggle. He comes to break down the isolation of our struggle in the states and to show that the struggle of uh, discrimination is the same as the struggle of a peasant in a rice paddy. So what he comes to do is to link together the struggle of the Vietnamese and our struggle in a clear sense. He comes to show the necessity to stand up against your own government to take a proper stand against the government if the government is correct. So he comes now again to show his law, which is always said that there are two laws, man-made laws and God's law. But this is the highest step because his breaking of man-made laws were breaking of southern laws, laws in the south by South State, which everybody had to condemn. But going against the United States government is another issue. As a matter of fact, he depended upon the United States government in its contradiction with the south in his struggle against breaking the laws in the south. But when you go against the United States government, there's nobody upon whom he can call except God to help them seriously in his struggle. So here, whether he knew it or not, he was taking the conscience of his people, not just against the southern sheriff, not just against uh, Bull Connor, but now against the entire policy of the United States government in its foreign relationship to Vietnam. And obviously, Vietnam only represented the top. The entire foreign relationship was the same. Oh, the response was just like a shepherd uh, leading his flock, you know, going to uh, give them uh, water on green pastures. They responded. You know, I'm often amazed. People say, you know, oh, Dr. King, he speaks uh, with such big words that poor people can't understand. No, King was a true teacher. I mean, he would teach, he would speak, use all those broad concepts, but they would understand exactly what he was saying. So his church understood precisely the struggle in Vietnam, the necessity of nonviolence to be applied here, the necessity of them to heighten their consciousness against the war in Vietnam, using their experiences from their own struggle against racism, and they came to understand properly that this position would put him on a most unpopular position and would lead him into complete uh, confrontation with the forces. They understood completely. Okay, there was a disagreement about having whites on the march. Why did you not want whites on the march, America? On the Meredith March? No, the disagreement was not on having whites. 
there was agreement was on having a white leadership on the march. And this goes back to a long uh, fight that SNCC had. Matter of fact, John Lewis represented best at the March on Washington. Uh, the March on Washington, if you remember correctly, uh, John Lewis had a line in his speech which uh, a Jewish uh, rabbi who was uh, giving the, uh, also on the platform on the March on Washington did not agree with. And because he did not agree with this line of the speech, uh, John Lewis had to change the line. Of course, needless to say, when John Lewis came back to SNCC and told SNCC what happened, SNCC lamb-blasted him and uh, Cortland Cox. I remember Cortland Cox was dodging as best as he could and said, well, we got what we wanted because while the line didn't get in the speech, it got in the newspapers all over the world and people knew exactly what the line is, so we thought we won. But uh, while we appreciated that, we didn't appreciate the fact that anybody could dictate to SNCC what they could say to their people on a march that they themselves had organized. So the question of white leadership in SNCC was one which had already raised conflict since 1963 on the March of Washington. And SNCC was very clear here because these white liberals can work with SNCC, but they cannot tell SNCC what to do, nor what to say. So to ensure this in a march on Washington, we wanted to make sure that so white labor unions were excluded. to ensure on the uh, Meredith March that there will be no even conflict with li white liberals on the direction of the march. Okay. Oops, uh, I think I wasn't Second, Second six. six. Okay. Okay, what was the position that you had on white being on the march, Meredith March? All right, our position was clear. We had no opposition to them. But certainly... We had no opposition to uh, whites participating in the Meredith March. It was a level of participation which we were concerned with. And that we were concerned that there was to be no white leadership in the march. Of course, here we were clear. The work in Mississippi had been done only by uh, groups, uh, by uh, SNCC and Corps, actually, who were in the forefront. And uh, we knew properly the territory. Uh, the white workers which uh, SNCC brought in in the summer project of 1964 before the march were used and were placed properly in positions which would in no way infect and we were very strong about this fact because of uh, the inferiority imposed upon our people through exploitation that makes it appear as if we are not capable of leading ourselves. And uh, this is one thing we, were sh we wanted to stop. And secondly, we didn't particularly like, not only in the United States, but all over the world, where white liberals without bases have a right to leadership in oppositions. For example, you can look sometimes outside of America and you'll find white people in leadership positions where there's no white base in the organization. So uh, we will work, this is a political uh, question. Where are the base? What gives them the right to leadership position? So we wanted to work all of these out on the Meredith March, and they were worked out properly. There was no uh, white participation until we got into Jackson, Mississippi, where by that time, for us, the march had been finished, our political work had been done. We released our struggle against them, and we allowed the NAACP to come back. The, uh, Whitney Young was allowed to come back and speak, and I think even Walter Ruther, Yes, Walter Ruth also was allowed to come and uh, speak, of course, to be quite honest about it. The reason that SNCC did make its position that they could come back now was, number one, for us, the march had been finished. We had done our work through the route. And number two, they promised to pay for the bills on the march. Okay. I'll cut, please. Okay. Cut. Talk about the black power speech. All right. To uh, use the term black power, SNCC had already decided this before the march. That must be properly understood. We decided to use the march for an education purpose. Number one, we wanted to push strongly our struggle against the war in Vietnam. 
So people will look clearly at the merit of March. You will see anti-Vietnam propping up here. King wasn't using it then, but you will see this is one of the areas where we started to hit him with it seriously. Our march was to put strong nationalism in, to have direct leadership uh, from us, and of course to throw our black power for the mass of the people. We prepared the terrain. Uh, every night uh, before we went out, the advanced scout, those who went out a day before, before the time we would be in marching, would go out and prepare things. Uh, Willie Ricks uh, was then uh, asked and sent out in the assignment to head up the advanced party. And we told him, all right, when you go with your advanced party, uh, Brother uh, Willie Ricks was sent out as head as the advanced scouts, and sometimes he could have as many as 20 to 40, and as we grew bigger, even 20 or 40 people under his direction to spread out. And his task was to take them, spread them out to plantations, speak to the uh, sharecroppers, tell them the march was coming through, but to throw out black power and to give little black power speeches to get the reaction. I think about three nights before Greenwood, because I think it was decided where's the best place for us to launch it. About three nights before Greenwood, uh, I remember about two o'clock in the morning, Ricks came back and he was giving a report, and uh, Cleve Sellers was uh, sitting next to me, I remember. And Ricks was saying, we ought to drop it now. The people are ready for it. He said, I said it the other day, and they dropped their hose, you know. And uh, I said to uh, Cleve, I said, you know, you sent the wrong man out because uh, we need a clear analysis here, and this man is given to exaggerations and uh, talking all sorts of uh, nonsense in hyperbolic terms, and we need a clear analysis. Rick said, I'm telling you the truth! You know? So I said, I've heard your truth before. You know, we need somebody who can really do this. Well, unfortunately, we had no one else who we could send out because the next night, if I remember correctly, I think it was just before Green was at Canton, where we got uh, beaten so badly. And Uh, well, we knew, as I said, we planned to use the march as a political platform, and we understood this political platform would put us in contradiction to uh, King. But we didn't want any hostility with King. And throughout the march, SNCC can clearly show that, at least in my relationship with King, it wasn't the slightest hostility. We had different positions. They were clearly understood and laid out. So as Ricks were telling us about how great the people were, we were moving into Greenwood. Now, I myself had been in Greenwood, Mississippi, since early '60. I'd worked in the project there, and when the head of the second congressional district, this was our base. So I had spent time in the jail in the Greenwood so many times. The police knew me, the police chief knew me, everyone in the town knew me. So we decided Greenwood, it was Nick's strongest base in the Delta. We couldn't go wrong. Unfortunately for the police, we went to set up some uh, tents there, and the police had decided to arrest me. Okay, so before I was arrested, we were discussing Greenwood. This is where we will launch Black Power. So when I got arrested, uh, Ricks uh, was on the side there when the police said, let them arrest you. We'll get you out of jail, and you come out and make the speech tonight. And he disappeared. Well, you know how Ricks speaks. So <laughs> anyway, I went to jail. But uh, I was brought out, and uh, when I was released, it was at night, the speech was going on. And uh, when I came to the speech, I was in line. Ricks came back. He said, we have everything prepared. We're ready for black power. We've uh, spoke about it all day. We've uh, primed up the people. And luckily for us, our biggest problem was Martin Luther King. Because I knew that once uh, black power was uh, said, Martin Luther King would have to come, not uh, fight against it, but would his best try to give reasonings to water it down. But uh, luckily for us, the night in Greenwood, King had to go to do a taped uh, television thing, I think, for Meet the Press. So he had to go to Memphis. So he was not there the night in Greenwood. 
uh, he had other people there, but they uh, were not a threat to us. King was the uh, real threat to us. And so King was not there. It meant the whole night belonged to us, and we were in Greenwood in SNCC territory. As a matter of fact, the last time uh, King came to Greenwood, Mississippi, in uh, 1964, as head of the project for SNCC, I was the one who took care of him, met him at the airport, uh, took care of his housing, took care of his feeding, arranged all of his meetings, everything, and provided his bodyguard for him. So Greenwood, uh, King knew was SNCC territory if he didn't know anything else. So maybe for that reason he said, well, he would miss Greenwood. But that was the night. Ricks had everybody primed. He said, just get to your speech. We're going against freedom now. We're going for black power. Don't hit too much on freedom now, but hit the need for power. So we built up on the need for power. And just when I got there, before I got it, Ricks was there saying, hit him now, hit him now. I kept saying, give me time, give me time. When we finally got him, we dropped it. Black power, of course, they had been primed, and they responded immediately. But I myself, to be honest, I didn't expect that enthusiastic response. You know, and the enthusiastic response obviously not only shocked me, but gave me more energy to uh, carry it on further. Uh, by the time we got down that night, SCLC was running around everywhere. We knew it was finished. We had made our victory. They could not bring it back. It was over. From now on, it was black power. We continued with the slogan. Uh, King was immediately rushed back. It was too late. We had a meeting the following morning where uh, King tried his best to... Uh, asked me not to use the uh, term black power, but I told him that uh, really I could not do that, that uh, this was an organizational uh, decision, not mine. And like him, I represent an organization, and I must represent that organization, or I resign from the position which I hold, and uh, I was not uh, prepared to do that, so we would have to use the term. Did you expect the reaction Oh, yes, of course. We expected it. We expected the press to uh, be completely against us, to use all sorts of uh, terms, but that was not our problem. King was on the march. And since King was on the march, they could not attack the march without attacking King. And King could not leave the march, so their hands would be tied only to attack us, leave the march in place, and leave King out there to see how he would relate to it. King obviously could not attack us. And if you will look everywhere, King has never attacked black power. He said, I wouldn't use the term. The connotation conjured. There were a number of uh, reasons that the decision for us to pinch, pitch the uh, tent in Canton. Uh, if, my memory me, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was on school grounds. Anything, one thing I'm sure of, it was off of church grounds. And uh, while the church... Uh, I think the decision to uh, continue to pitch the tent on our school grounds were made in line, number one, with the area that we kept feeling that as a people, we really have to have more control over our destiny. And uh, while throughout the struggle in the South, we had uh, those uh, preachers who understood uh, the truth of life, they opened their church doors uh, to the struggle. And you have in your record how many of our churches were bombed and burnt as a result of this, but mainly in the churches. So we wanted to spread out of uh, the churches. We wanted to other aspects of our life, our schools, etc., etc. Uh, Canton, Mississippi, of course, was worked by the Congress of Racial Equality, and it was a terrorist county. 
I mean, the, the history of terror in that county against uh, core workers will make anyone incensed with injustice. So the core people had uh, stepped up their people, and uh, they had made this decision. McKissick, who was head of core, could not back down. Uh, we of SNCC wanted the decision, and the real weight was uh, King. But King recognized, number one, that we did need to push in areas outside of this, and King, of course, was never afraid of confrontation. People get confused because he was nonviolent. They try to make him look like a lamb who took anything. But King was never afraid of confrontation. He would confront the enemy anytime using nonviolence as a weapon. So the question of confrontation was no question. And King himself felt that, yes, we must move outside of just our churches to get broader support for our struggle. Camera roll 1038, Psalm 116 continues. This is Tim's team's feet. How did SNCC help form the Black Panther Party? Uh, as a matter of fact, SNCC formed it. The SNCC formed, uh, was the organization that uh, created the Black Panther Party. We have already spoken of its work in Lowndes County. We won't, uh, just from new scratch, I was trying to save you tape like you've been saying. Uh, Stick, in fact, created the uh, Black Panther Party, and it was created in Lowndes County by a Stick uh, staff there. Uh, we said it was created, uh, we have uh, said it earlier in other places, that uh, it was created as a result of the refusal or the unacceptability of the so-called compromise presented by the Democratic Party to the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in Atlantic City. The Black Panther Party was created by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Lowndes County, Alabama. Here they came to organize an independent political party against uh, the Democratic Party, which needed a symbol. The symbol chosen was the Black Panther. Uh, throughout the year, work was done around this organization in order to make it a legitimate political party. It could only become a legitimate political party after receiving a certain percentage of votes. This was... Uh, after having, uh, in Lowndes County, after having uh, formed the Lowndes County Freedom Organization with the Black Panther as a symbol leading towards the formation of a party, you cannot become a party until after election where a certain percentage of the electoral votes uh, counted. The uh, terrorist groups, Ku Klux Klan, etc., in order to ensure that uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization will not become the Black Panther Party, made it clear that they intended to uh, create violence around election time. Uh, they began to give examples of this violence. Uh, those of us working with SNCC, recognizing that uh, we had a responsibility here, but recognizing that our forces were not strong enough militarily to meet those of the terrorist groups, because uh, even in Alabama, in Klan territory, they will not just depend upon Lowndes County. They will call the whole Klan from the state of Alabama, so we will need protection here. We decided, through our contacts, to go throughout the large ghettos, New York, Chicago, Boston, California, etc. And to, we had contact with a lot of young uh, brothers and sisters who were involved in uh, military action. Some have even served in the Army. And to collect those who were serious, who would come down to help form a force ready to uh, meet fire with fire, a military force against the Klan. So these groups came from New York, from Chicago, from California, from Washington, D.C., etc., etc. And when they came as uh, SNCC people, we had put them in certain areas. They came with guns. They brought uh, heavy guns, uh, 
much materials, and we also let it be known to the terrorist groups that uh, we were bringing uh, people with guns, and uh, we're going to meet fire with fire. Uh, so it became clear as uh, we mounted, the uh, police would see new people coming in, and they would see uh, certain areas being stacked up, so it became clear. The Justice Department itself informed them that young uh, thugs, uh, they called them, were coming into Lowndes County. So many of these young brothers and sisters who came and had to spend at least two weeks in the county, and we didn't want them just carrying around guns, but integrated in political work, even though their major work was uh, protection and the firearms, integrated in political work, they became contaminated with the idea of the Black Panther Party. What really confused them was the average age, I'm sure, of someone in the Black Panther Party in Lowndes County would have to be about 54 or 55. And, of course, you had people up into their late 70s and 80s but all the people in Lowndes County were armed. And on the day of election, they brought their guns. You know, the law said you had to leave your guns X number of feet away from the polling place. So all of them, old women, brought their guns. And this really shocked these uh, young brothers and sisters who were in Chicago and uh, New York and thought to see these old people carrying guns. So the idea of the Black Panther Party actually spreading outside of SNCC was as a result of these young brothers coming. The one who came from California to take it back was a brother by the name of Mark Comfort. He was the one who took the idea originally back to California, and it was from him that other groups sprang up, and finally, later on, Huey Newton and Bobby Seals and them uh, came on the scene. Great. Okay. Right. Uh, I must remind you that uh, for the SNCC and the uh, Panther Alliance, I played a very minimum role in the structural deals. You know, my only position of leadership in SNCC was as its chairperson for one year. I had never run for any position before nor after. I never served on its central committee. I was just a simple field organizer. And after resigning from chair... Uh, please. Uh. This is all wonderful history. I can't use any of it. So, it, tell, me, tell me what you think you're going to say. That. Did you well, no. Well, I was. What was it like, from your point of view, at the Free Huey Rally in Oakland in '68? Oh, the Free Huey Rally represents uh, a lot of things for me in the struggle. Uh, you know, uh, Malcolm X, of course, uh, was lumping proletariat and uh, came from a criminal life and transformed himself to be a sterling revolutionary, where he, in fact, gave his life for his people's uh, struggle. We should not assume that all people in Lumpen Proletariat who talk about struggle are Malcolm X. And this error some people make in talking about the Black Panther Party, and in particular people like Bobby Seals or Elrich Cleaver. But my excitement at the uh, Free Huey Rally came from the potential that could exist from a merger between the Lumpen Proletariat and the intelligentsia, the revolutionary intelligentsia of our people in America, which Nick represented. Oh, I uh, recall always the uh, Free Huey uh, rally with a lot of enthusiasm. It represented a watershed in our struggle. Here under the uh, Black Panther Party in uh, California, where uh, young uh, brothers and sisters of our community who uh, make up the lumpen proletariat, that element that uses their protest in the activity that brings them into direct conflict with the uh, police force bordering sometimes on criminal activity, where they began to flock into the uh, Panthers. 
At the same time, the SNCC who represented the Revolutionary Intelligentsia, that is to say those people who have knowledge and were trained and used this knowledge for the people, were able to come together. This bringing together them would produce for me Malcolm X and all of them. So it meant you'd have an organization of Malcolm X everywhere. So I looked forward with uh, great enthusiasm. I recognized, however, that the alliance could not work. Uh, simply because my own position in SNCC at that time was uh, clear. I sooner or later would have to leave that organization within a very short period, one way or the other. Uh, at the same time, secondly, the struggle between the Panther leadership at that time, specifically Elridge Cleaver and Bobby Seale, and the leadership of SNCC, specifically Jim Foreman, were both jockeying for positions of domination. Brother Jamil El Amin, uh, then known as uh, Rap Brown, who was uh, chairman of SNCC, was uh, under uh, great strains and uh, great limitations of movement by the police force. The Free Huey rally in uh, February of uh, 1968 uh, represents, of course, a, a watershed in the struggle. It helps uh, bring the struggle out of the South, uh, putting it clearly outside of the confines of the South, uh, the North, uh, geographically speaking here, the West, but politically speaking, the uh, out of the South, the North. And uh, here you were able to see a combination of uh, youthful brothers and sisters who would, uh, for other reasons, uh, be involved maybe in gangs, uh, coming here to put their energies towards political work for the liberation of their people. At the same time, you had uh, experienced strugglers, uh, those in the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who had been uh, seasoned strugglers, and those who, unlike uh, the uh, majority of the members of the Black Panther Party, had acquired uh, great intellectual skills, and uh, unlike uh, many of their counterparts, used these skills for the benefit of the people. So you had at the Free Huey uh, rally a blending of, uh, if you will, just in street vernacular, school brothers and uh, brothers on the block, school sisters and sisters on the block, coming together to try and put their organizations in a coalition for higher struggle against the enemy. And what was that rally like? The sense of it. The sense of the rally could be only uh, described as electrifying. Uh, and of course, if anyone has been around any of these uh, rallies, they will know what uh, that means. I mean, the place was packed and uh, the people were enthusiastic and uh, are ready to follow the program outline that would lead to liberation and ready to uh, lead to it, of course. Uh, like all uh, mass meetings in that period of our struggle, it had unfortunately a sort of uh, feeling as if uh, liberation was uh, instant, as if it would come instantly rather than preparing people for a protracted uh, struggle. Outside of this shortcoming, it was an electrifying uh, uh, event where uh, mass of the people came and had a broad, uh, broad spectrum of people. Uh, Ron Dellums at that time was uh, present at, uh, on the platform just to give you an idea of it. So it had a broad spectrum of the entire community supporting the struggle to free uh, Brother Huey Newton. Uh, when uh, uh, acting as the honorary prime minister for the uh, Panther Party, uh, I was asked to, uh, as for my task, to help uh, create chapters uh, throughout the country. And uh, in uh, Chicago, there was a snake person by the name of Bob Brown, <coughs> who uh, 
who uh, contacted me to let me know that there was some activity around there and they could start a Panther Party and they wanted to have some uh, event there, a speech to begin to kick it off. Uh, so I received an invitation from a man called Fred Hampton, who at that time was a chairperson of the youth chapter of the NAACP in uh, Maywood. Uh, for us, it doesn't make a difference who invites us. And of course, we're very happy when it's the NAACP because it means closer relationships. So we went to spend some time in Chicago, precisely around the uh, Maywood event. Uh, Fred Hampton, when I met, was young, full of enthusiasm, uh, bright, and uh, really full of struggle, full of uh, enthusiasm for the struggle of our people. Uh, Bob Brown discussed it, and some people discussed him joining the Panthers. But uh, personally, and up until now, politically, I've always had hesitation from going and what you will consider ripping people off from one organization and pulling them in your organization. I know that there are enough of our people unorganized, not in any organizations. It's not necessary to us to go to one organization and steal. Better we go from the unorganized mass and pull somebody. So I had some hesitations. But uh, when I arrived and I saw uh, Hampton and his uh, enthusiasm, and he himself said that he would like to join the uh, Panther Party, well, then, okay, he seems ready for it. Uh, go ahead. So uh, I think in two weeks he joined the uh, Panther Party, resigned. Ten thirty-nine. Okay. As we said uh, in our task there as Honorary Prime Minister to create uh, chapters for the uh, Panther Party, we were invited in Chicago by the youth chapter of the head of the youth chapter of the NAACP, a brother by the name of Fred Hampton. Uh, we went to uh, do the event and spend some time around Maywood. Uh, uh, Mr. Hampton, brother, had uh, given some indication that he might want to join the Panther Party. I had some hesitation, as I don't usually like to take people from one organization and put them in another organization. Enough of our people are unorganized. My feelings always go for the unorganized and pull them into the organization. But uh, he was determined, and I think in some two weeks uh, later, he did join the uh, Black Panther Party. Uh, when he joined the Black Panther Party, I was contacted by uh, Bob Brown, who also was working the Black Panther Party, but working with our group inside the Black Panther Party, who were working behind the scenes, not getting publicity. And uh, it was Bob Brown and uh, Hampton, step by step. If my memory serves me correctly, I paid the money for his ticket to California to get orientation uh, there from the Panthers and spoke to uh, both Seals and uh, Cleaver about him. They didn't know him until he went there. And uh, when he came back to Chicago through Bob Brown, I was uh, continuing contact with him and uh, working and building up the uh, chapter of the uh, Black Panther Party. I thought that he was a little bit too uh, exuberant uh, and a little bit uh, too uh, excited and enthusiastic without uh, understanding the necessity to build up forces. But uh, he was a dedicated uh, brother. He uh, loved his people and uh, clearly he was willing to sacrifice uh, himself. Great. Okay. 1039, halfway in, now this is Team D. Marcus? You're, you're now a role model in the late 60s as in, in some ways as opposed to Dr. King. What are you saying that he's not that they identify? I'm not sure it is um, <clears throat> what I'm saying that he is not in terms of these uh, youth identifying. I think it's more the reaction of the white establishment to King. Uh, no one who truly understands the struggle can in any way fault King. King really uh, comes out almost uh, in perfect perfection. 
Of course, his uh, political errors are to be understood. But I mean in terms of his commitment, in terms of his total love, in terms of his total dedication to the struggle, one can find no shortcomings here. But uh, unfortunately, the uh, system had learned how to contain nonviolent demonstrations. And having learned how to contain them, it was not necessary for them to respond to them. Thus, King was not uh, failing as much as the white establishment was no longer responding to him, having now thought that they could contain him. Alternative methods were therefore necessary. So that shift which appeared to be coming from King towards me was not because of me or King, was because nonviolence really was reaching an impasse. An impasse. And since King was so nonviolent as a philosophy, it must be at all times, he could no longer change it. I remember very carefully in Chicago, and if you have the film, it would be powerful if you showed it, after the Chicago rebellions there, he said, and I never, on national TV, if every, and this is his quote, if every Negro in America becomes violent, I, Martin Luther King, shall remain nonviolent. So here you could see clearly the shift was not King, but that this policy which had reached an impasse. The uh, alternative policy of by any means necessary was what was attracting the people more than uh, what was being said over King. Well, I don't think so much that it was what King was saying. I think, number one, it was the impasse, which... Uh, the uh, young forces in, the, in our community at uh, that time were in fact trying now as best as they could to help make their contribution to the struggle. King's philosophy of nonviolence was in fact becoming a stumbling block. Uh, that is to say, the enemies had learned how to contain nonviolent demonstrations and their effect was, uh, for practical purposes, uh, non-effective. Because of King's refusal to uh, use nonviolence as a tactic, and because he clung to it as a principle, consequently incapable of changing from it, uh, he found himself as an impasse, at an impasse. The younger forces in our community were looking for means to achieve the objectives, and since nonviolence was no longer effective, they were looking for any means necessary. Thus, those who were advocating any means necessary were the ones that they were attracted to. Well, of course, you know, when uh, King was assassinated uh, in April of 1968, uh, he just followed a whole long line of assassinations uh, within a short period. People like Medgar Evers, people like Martin Luther King, etc., etc. Just speaking. People like Medgar Evers, uh, who was. Uh, wait, um, you have him on the program, I'm sure. Uh, when uh, King was assassinated in April of 68, it really followed after a long line of assassinations of uh, people like Medgar Evers, uh, people like uh, Malcolm X, and uh, others like uh, William Lee, Herbert Lee, etc., so those had known about. So Martin Luther King's assassination really came uh, since the 60s at the end of a large number of assassinations. So it represented a culmination, that is to say. And through all of these assassinations, uh, no one was punished. Uh, the culprits were never caught or when caught uh, were not punished, etc. So 
the anger of uh, the masses here had to be seriously appreciated. Our people were steaming with anger. And uh, in addition to that, King was just the wrong person to uh, assassinate at that time. I understand that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a decision to make. Uh, so with the assassination of uh, King after this long line of assassination uh, by uh, others, the uh, steaming anger of the people was clear. And I think the anger was even more so because anyone could have been killed except King, since King was so perfect in his uh, advocation of nonviolence. That is to say, for the people, if they had killed uh, myself or uh, someone else who was actually advocating uh, self-defense, this could be comprehended. But King himself was preaching total nonviolence and living total nonviolence. So for the people, whether you were violent or nonviolent, if you were opposed to any aspect of uh, the government, that you too were putting yourself in danger. Consequently, the time for a mass urban revolt was sensed. And those of us who recognize it, recognizing myself personally, that if no reaction came for the death of King, then these uh, racist pigs in the country will feel that they can kill anybody with impunity. So there must be some action, some revenge must be made here at King's funeral to stay their hands against killing those who come to take a leadership position in fighting for the people. Uh, I'm not afraid of death, but certainly I wouldn't want my death to go cheaply. I think that the enemy must pay for my death. So uh, since I was alive after King's death, all the energies were directed towards creating as quickly as possible as much revenge by the people against uh, King's position. Just in passing on your Black Panther program, it will be clear to know just about every city in this country had a rebellion except in Oakland, where the Black Panther Party, under the leadership of Elridge Cleaver, in conjunction with the police department, quelled the population. I know you had to cut, but that one was on top. You see... You think it's just like a script, but sometimes you forget the script. It's true, but not when you already said it. <laughs> That's okay. why you should have got it. Yeah. Yeah. Emerald, 1040, uh, Sound 116 continues. This is 10D. 10D. Mark it. Okay. Uh, since uh, rebellion is being real, can you continue to the South? When Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in uh, April of 68, his assassination came after the long line of assassination of others such as Medgar Evers, such as uh, Malcolm X, such as Herbert Lee, whom uh, people may or may not have known, but the conscious element in our community certainly were aware of it. Of course, we must add that all of these assassinations uh, went uh, unpunished by the uh, culprits. So. Now, we have For us, the... Uh, for us, the uh, real... Uh, funeral for Dr. King will come in his pyre, the funeral pyre, the burning of the fires of the cities. So uh, the teeming anger of the people, I felt at that time, must be directed clearly against uh, the hands of uh, racism so that they will know that future uh, people who take this position will not be assassinated without some revenge against uh, the American capitalist system. So uh, consequently, uh, we directed all our energies towards uh, making sure that the people properly uh, vented their feelings and buried them properly through rebellions. And I remember while driving from Atlanta, from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta, I saw smoke for the entire trip in the car. They were everywhere putting Dr. King to rest, giving him his proper burial. When I arrived in Atlanta for the funeral, for all practical purposes, it was anticlimactic. I had already seen the funeral from Washington to Atlanta.
plan now. I didn't think it was going to blow up in violence like that. Like people. I was almost certain that the Poor People's Campaign could not achieve its objectives. Uh, I was certain that it would be a failure. But uh, I didn't see it in failure the way some people saw it, that everything will explode and there will be violence. No. I recognize that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, through his history, was capable of controlling all the violent elements when he was in charge by himself of demonstrations. And certainly, SCLC was in total command of the Poor People's Campaign. All other organizations that were working with them were certainly under them in strength, in influence, etc., etc. So I didn't see it, but certainly I knew there would be a failure. All it meant to me was that Dr. King would have to readjust his uh, policies and strategies and move a little bit more in a radical position. But uh, I was almost certain of a failure. And can you talk about that meeting with the Black United Front? Uh, of course, uh, before the Poor People's Campaign came into Washington, D.C., uh, even the press started its stupidity trying to pose uh, King and uh, some of us in the city in uh, direct opposition to each other. Uh, the first uh, Black United Front, uh, was, which was organized in the country, was organized by SNCC people. I uh, worked on that uh, staff there in Washington, D.C. And uh, that United Front was organized just before uh, King came into uh, Washington, D.C. for his uh, Poor People's Campaign. I remember his advance scouts were Jesse Jackson and Andrew Young. And then when they came for the meeting, I explained to them that we had a United Front and that it would be easy if uh, SELC uh, through Dr. King would just come and present the program and it would solve all problems. Uh, they were both rather sure that uh, Dr. King didn't have to come, just among ourselves joking. I think it was just you said, you know, the Lord isn't coming to y'all. Uh, that's what we used to joke, just a joke. And I told him, well, I'm sure he's going to come. Uh, well, of course, they had to come before the uh, United Front. And uh, in the United Front, we had uh, all segments of organizations from the NAACP. The uh, Black United Front had all elements inside of it, uh, from uh, the NAACP on the conservative side all the way to uh, forces that were advocating the burning of America. Uh, consequently, uh, it had the entire political spectrum. It was clearly understood that those who did not see that they could participate in the uh, Poor People's Campaign because of its nonviolent uh, philosophy should stay away from it. So the Black United Front gave a clear uh, assurance a clear assurance, you know it's my French and English when I'm speaking, a clear assurance to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King that those who did not believe in the uh, campaign's uh, tactic of uh, nonviolence or its philosophy would be nowhere around it. Only those who believed in it would come to uh, support it. And can you describe in the context in the uh, meeting before the Black United Front, Dr. King came. He explained and outlined precisely uh, the proposals for the Poor People's Campaign, its objectives, what it hoped to achieve, how he aimed to build it, the entire program. Uh, there were some questions uh, from members of the Black United Front to Dr. King. Uh, he answered some, I think, if I remember, Jesse and Andy Young also fielded some of the questions. And then, if my memory serves me correctly, because you're talking now about 20 years ago, uh, I think that uh, we did make a uh, resolution in which in this resolution we assured Dr. King that uh, no group which uh, did not accept the uh, philosophy or the tactic of nonviolence around the Poor People's Campaign would in any way, any way be associated with it. 
if they could do things to help in the background which had nothing to do with uh, conflict of their uh, interest here, then they would be happy to support it. Dr. King was extremely uh, happy, uh, quite contented, uh, thought he had achieved a great victory and uh, was prepared to move on with the Poor People's Campaign.